Welcome to the New Zealand Issues podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig and today we're joined by our Chief Economist Dr. Eric Crampton and by my good friend Dr. Carsten Halvers. Welcome guys. It's great to have you here, Carsten, because um, Thank not, you. not just that you're uh, a German compatriot of mine, but you're an immigration lawyer and you've been in New Zealand since the mid-1990s working on immigration policy. You're qualified as a lawyer in both Germany and New Zealand. Just in Germany. Not in New Zealand. Well, you're an immigration advisor in New Zealand. I'm a, I'm a registered immigration advisor, yeah. So you're practicing in both countries, but most recently, of course, you've been focused on immigration settings in New Zealand, and you've had an article mentioning you at length in the National Business Review last week, and that's why we thought we'd invite you into our little podcast studio to talk to you about where we're going with immigration settings and what you've experienced, especially over the past year of COVID-19. So... You mentioned before that you think this could be a therapeutic session where you could actually just <laughs> vent your frustration on the settings. But what, if you summarize the experience of the past year, what would it be? Oh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, um, it um, has a therapeutic as well. It, it's indeed very frustrating on, on, on all fronts. Um, everybody has heard about split families. Um, we are, have investor clients who have invested. 10 million New Zealand dollars. The funds are in New Zealand already. They are not allowed to come in. Um, it's a general lack of responsiveness um, that, that we complain about with Immigration New Zealand. We have, um, you might have heard of um, visas, visitor visas, work visas that have been rolled over, have been extended. Um, and um, But we don't get any, any confirmation of that. Give you an example. Someone, father of a family, has a, has a work visa. It was confirmed by immigration. This visa will be extended for six months. Uh, confirmation will follow in March. Now we have June. We haven't received that, that information. So they're basically without, technically without a, a valid visa. Um, the children go to school. They would be on an equally, um, on a student visa with, with the same duration. Um, the Ministry of Education creates pressure. So the clients say they need confirmation of their visa status. You, you must imagine that it's the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Immigration, instead of having a shortcut there and saying, when can these visas be issued? Because everybody's aware of that. The pressure goes from, from the Ministry of Education to the school, to the children, to the parents, and then ultimately to us. So we have to, have to stand up. And, and in some cases, um, I'm glad we're not living in medieval times where, where the messenger was shot. Um, so it's just, I mean, I can talk about a few things. It would be great if, if just a work could be picked up and we could come back to a, to a normal processing and communication. So maybe we let's, let's go back situation. then to uh, more normal times. You've been working in this field for more than 20 years yep. and it wasn't always like that. New Zealand was actually quite an easy country to navigate as a migrant. Yeah. And that yep. was your experience actually working in this field in the 1990s and early 2000s. Yes, yes it was was um, like said earlier um, there was a time where you had you could go to an immigration office and discuss cases in person um, where we had we went to Christchurch with with five work visa applications where the employers wanted the worker to start immediately we discussed the case we presented the documentation got the visa issued on the day there was a fast efficient and 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 a, and a human your service with a human interface um, that has been lost more and more over time when did we lose it? Um, well, there was um, it was was quite a process. I mean, and, and I understand, you know, things got 
more automated. There were, were um, internet systems were introduced, and um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not talking as a as a nostalgic. But there was a there was a um, uh, f- say over the last three four years there was a there was a, a change that that was noticeable where immigration officials like the ministry didn't didn't care about certain policies like the entrepreneur policy um, had a we had a ninety percent decline rate. How can you offer a policy with a ninety percent decline rate? Um, currently, recent figures show that the decline rate has gone down to forty nine percent. But the reason for that might be that an entrepreneur application, for instance, is an offshore application, and currently you can't lodge offshore applications. Um, and then um, the few onshore applications will probably be filtered. I have only accepted, I think, two cases in the last three years since I heard of that that decline rate because it doesn't make any sense. Um, so this is an there's an element of either neglect or a lack of openness um, that it's not communicated that we don't want certain policies, investor, entrepreneur. I find them important, um, but it's legitimate if the government says they don't find it important, but it would be nice if they would say that, then we wouldn't put so much emphasis on it. From the outside, it felt like the prior Labour Green coalition wasn't able to, Labour Green New Zealand first, it felt like they wanted to severely restrict numbers, but without making an explicit policy decision about that. And so that turned into an administrative change in processing where they just allow massive backlogs and not really get back to anybody, process the, the applications. So it was a de facto restriction without having to go through the potentially more complicated coalition negotiations around locking a pile of foreigners out. Am I nuts to have viewed it that way? No, I'm certainly I'm not someone who who buys into conspiracy theories, but but it makes sense what you say. Yeah, that could be one of the solutions. Another one is that we have now a backlog of almost 24 months on skilled migrant residence applications, and that's during a time where immigration had 80% less applications on hand. So there was plenty of time and and resources to to work on these applications, and it now seems to sort of um, trickle through that there's a total revamp on the on the cards which hasn't been discussed previously and it's not just skilled migrants it's high net worth individuals so the government in a recent um, immigration policy reset speech actually declared they wanted to target these high net worth individuals and yet in the article in the NBR that mentioned you, it was also mentioned that these applications can take up to three years. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a new, I don't know if it's a policy, which which I don't understand, where I think 220 high net worth individuals can come to New Zealand, but the process is not really clear. I only heard that it is through New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. So it's not, for me, it's not a transparent process. And as an immigration advisor who gets regular updates, I would know it if that was official policy. So it's something um, where we would like to have more transparency. Um, the other thing is, yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a dilemma if you're an invest firm overseas and you were in the process of applying um, that you could invest your money, but you couldn't come in as a resident. And in some cases, I have a have a client who had. Um, so when, once you once you're approved in principle as an investor, you have 12 months regularly to liquidate and transfer and invest your funds in New Zealand. And in some cases, at the beginning of COVID, I mean, courses, the, the, uh, they collapsed, the markets collapsed. So someone like had to invest three million and would have lost half a million by, by doing this in time. And, and, and we tried to get some, some reason from the ministry. We, we started talking to the visa officer, to the branch manager, finally to the minister of immigration, and we didn't get any response. It was disappointing. 
uh, and only now, where the year is clearly over, they write to us and say, obviously, the requirements haven't been met. Would you like to withdraw your application? I think this is poor, and that should never happen. Uh, there should have been a, a process there, at least an extension um, un until the markets you know, came, came back into shape. Now, the government has been saying how much they want to refocus immigration around skilled migrants. And one of the things about skilled migrants is they've got a lot of options about where they might want to go. The government has been behaving as though like New Zealand is this perfect place and everybody would just want to go here so they can treat migrants kind of as badly as they want and it won't really affect anything. When I think back to when I immigrated here, it was shortly after having gotten um, permanent residence in the United States because my wife's American. The process through Department of Homeland Security there was just terrible. Like they treat you as a criminal mm. from the very outset. And even once you get permanent residence, you are definitely a second-class citizen. You're made to feel less than existing citizens all the time, lots of small ways. Coming to New Zealand was just a dream. The um, Immigration New Zealand were very mm. responsive. This was 2003. There were a few complications in my visa process. Nothing on the Immigration New Zealand side. It was more that the Canadians take so long to, to uh, process a police background yeah, check, yeah, yeah. at least at the time. Yeah. that my medical certificates uh, lapsed while we were waiting for the Canadians oh, yeah. to process my yeah. fingerprints. So then I had to go and get another set of medical checks while we were in Germany. But all of that meant a few delays in getting our paperwork through. And we needed to get things kind of rushed on the New Zealand side because all of our goods were in transit and we had the flights booked and Immigration New Zealand just jumped, right? So, yeah, I can see the spot you're in. None of this is your fault. We're going to make this work for you. Yeah. I get the impression that this isn't how they work anymore. And it was it was really special coming here, right? They really made you feel wanted and accepted. And then once you got here as a migrant, you could just live like anyone else. Now, from the kinds of folks that you're talking with and that you're trying to help through the immigration process, is this something that's potentially off-putting for the kinds of people that the government claims to want to be attracting? Well, it's easy to to take that personally, isn't isn't it? If something like that, to be fair, I mean, there are some 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 good uh, visa officers, and we have got good working connections with them, particularly the old hands. And it's really a breeze to see you have X Y Z on the other side of the case and and discuss it. It's more like a you're working together on a, on a case and you want to make it happen. I also think you know New Zealand is a is a fabulous country. So once you're through the eye of the needle, I I never have experienced any. On a, on a personal level, never any rejection or, or something like that. People invite you with with open arms. It's it's great. Yeah, the visa process. Yeah, it is. Um, what, what's it, what's the new saying? It it is what it is. But it could it could be a lot better just by by looking into it. Coming to skilled migrant, I, I hear that a, a reset is discussed, um, and it gives a bit of the impression as if everything that's in the pipeline now is not not worth it. Are not worthy residents. And these are all people who have to qualify under under rigid points criteria. Um, you would need, in order to meet the points criteria, you would need to have a job. You would need to have a recognized qualification, un unless you're a rare exception. I think the, if this is an assessment, I, I think it's incorrect. Uh, most of these cases um, will will be good and will be will be assets for New Zealand. And um, having to wait for two years, it's um, I, I don't know how to explain that to the clients. And I'm and I'm happy that our clients are so patient that they believe us, because you know if you're you're imagine you're on on, on the others no these these are onshore clients otherwise yep. it wouldn't be processed but imagine like the investors you're on the other side of the world uh, one of our clients and that was in the NBR article described himself as homeless and, and itinerant at the moment because he he 
liquidated his funds and they're in New Zealand. He's got a huge history with New Zealand. He's been involved in business here um, back in the in the 90s and, and he is now, there's nothing he can do. And, and adding to that, I think we have our, our MRQ facilities are sufficient to accommodate, um, say, 400 um, Investor 2 applicants. 400 is the, is the annual cap of Investor 2 um, applicants that will be accepted here. We talked about highly skilled migrants. We talked about high net worth individuals. There are also many split families because of COVID-19. Yes. What is the outlook for them? I know of one particular case, I think... We all heard about the South African teacher now split yes. from his family for yes. 16, 17 months or something like that. It seems ridiculous. We heard about another case where New Zealand even paid the relocation cost of a high school teacher only then to fail that high school teacher to let him reunite with his family. So the teacher, of course, after more than a year decided to return home. So what do we do about these cases? I mean, MIQ is not full at the moment. MIQ has massive capacity left for people you would think should qualify for that. You, I imagine you're dealing with cases like that. Yeah. What's your experience? My flippant remark is that, that foreigners are not by nature more contagious than New Zealanders. Um, so they, and, and we have the capacities in, in, in MIQ. So I, I don't see really any reason why these families can't be brought together. There has been a recent change. Um, but this, partic this particular case is a, is, a, is a good one because he's also a math teacher and you could prove that the capacities weren't used fully. So we're, we're not using the capacities. We have split families. Why, why do we do that? Why? And, and we make a change and that doesn't only affect a, a, a fraction of, of those cases. As a lawyer, do you think that New Zealand actually meets its international obligations? We, we have an obligation, at least by being a signatory, to the um, UN Charter of Human Rights, which protects the family. So you would kind of imagine as a lawyer that New Zealand would have an obligation to at least unite families under and that. We've signed that UN Charter. I'm a bit out of my depth there and haven't practiced um, real law for, for a while to, <laughs> to comment on that. But I would just come from a, from a humanitarian aspect. For me, there is no compelling reason not to do it. And, and I find it's just, it's just heartbreaking to see these people. It is. I mean, imagine being separated from, from your family or your, your children. Um, and these are hundreds of cases yes, in New Zealand. Yes. It's hard to work back through what's motivating it and driving it. It looks like it's a combination of a pretty poorly thought through booking system and a strong wish to not fix it. So most of the stories you'll hear on this is that, well, under the booking system, people will make multiple bookings because they're not quite sure where they're going to be able yeah. to arrange their flights. The system doesn't eliminate the duplicate bookings. And then you wind up with forecast being at capacity, but always winding up being at under capacity because not all of those wind yeah. up being fulfilled. Yeah. If that's what's going on, it sounds like something that should be pretty easy to fix. And it seems so. to take mm -hmm. almost a willingness to not fix it, to wind up in the spot that we're in. The quasi-fix that they've had is that if you earn enough, then you're allowed to bring your family in. But there'll be plenty of workers like the math teacher who don't hit that criteria. And then I, you just wonder what's driving it. If the government is so worried about allowing the spouses of skilled workers that have been allowed in who are on perhaps lower income to come in during a pandemic and then maybe worries about whether if there's another like need to put out wage subsidies that the government's going to be on the hook for more money out of it or something. I, I don't know if that's what's underlying it or if it's just part of their hostility towards lower skilled migration in general or what they consider to be lower skilled 
and not wanting to have people coming in who are on lower wages, so making it really, really hard for them to bring their families in, maybe to deter others. It's hard to get a sense of what's really driving yeah. it. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, the cases we're dealing with, they're not lower-paid workers, so they're, they're in, a, in, in the regular to higher bracket. Um, so I don't think that's that's the case. So they, they would be able to support a family. Um, it is, yeah, I, I, I struggle to understand what's what's going on there. Do you think that there's a deliberate policy behind all of this simply to drive down the level of migration for some other political reasons? Yeah, it could be. What, what I heard is that um, that we've been previously over capacity and, and that government might feel that their hands are tied to go on with this because they got the, they got in annual criteria. But having said that, um, I personally think that the statistics are a bit distorted too. I heard that uh, everyone who's here for a year or longer counts as a migrant. Um, and if you count them all in, then it's easy to get come to figures like 100,000 migrants or so. It just you know, as an, as an explanation, you can be here as a visitor for a year. And if you're then counted as a resident, that would distort the figures. Um, the figures I know about is were always around the 45,000 plus minus 10%, uh, which we wanted to get in. And um, one of the figures I've seen was that about 27,000 of those came through skilled migration. Yeah, in our report, pre, um, I think it was 2017, we'd put out a report on immigration and we made a fair bit of emphasis there on using net migration figures rather than just the gross, especially where some yeah. of the ones that are considered to be longer term by the stats are actually going to be leaving shortly and then you have to yeah. match those, right? It's another consideration, of course, yeah. yeah. So if you had one wish for immigration policy in New Zealand for reform, what would it be? Listen to us, talk to us. And answer us if we have really, really urgent queries, if we have someone who is here legitimately without a visa because the visa hasn't been issued in time, if there are latent humanitarian cases, listen to us, help them. You mean on a case-by-case -case basis or in more general well, policy ide settings? I ideally in, in policy settings, um, but I'm a, I'm a practitioner. Um, if, you know, if we can help five or ten people, then it's better to then none of them but how much communication is there actually between the government and your industry there's very li very very little um, there's a bit of communication going between some industry bodies like the um, new zealand association for migration and investment in many of these cases um, we, we just don't get a response so you obviously do not feel consulted enough then. no no well, there seem to be a couple of things going on at the same time, right? There's a deliberate policy move to try and reduce numbers, and that's part of the immigration reset that they've got the Productivity Commission investigating, and there will likely to be a set of big policy changes coming through. Now, I disagree with a lot of that. I think that the harms from migration are grossly overstated. But mm. even leaving that aside, it just seems fundamentally wrong to treat people who are in the system and have been playing right by the rules of that system in the way that the government has been doing so. It would have seemed right to, because of COVID, just give continued um, extensions of work visas and not doing it like the day before your visa is going to be done. But yeah, we're going to extend everybody through to the end of 2022 because we don't know when this is going to be finishing up and reevaluate it on sort of rolling six-month okay. basis. And, 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 and also follow through and do the paperwork well, yeah. so that, that people really have a visa when, they, when they're asked to, to produce one. Like it just seems a nonsense that people who are here on work visas don't find out until a few weeks ahead of their visa's expiration that they're going to be allowed to continue. It just puts people in a terrible situation. Yes, yes. yeah. Well, I guess we can just um, hope for a change 
policy and a change actually in consultation with the industry. But for now, thank you, Carsten, for joining us today. You're welcome. And Enjoyed that. Yeah. Thanks for, for thanks for inviting me here. And I hope it was therapeutic enough for you. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit. Yeah. In, in any case, good luck. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you.